how long it will be. Uh, but I uh, want to just go through the Old Testament. The Old Testament can be confusing. It can be overwhelming. It can be so um, out of our element. Um, once again, we live post-Jesus. So sometimes it's like, I have the New Testament. Why do I need to spend that much time in the Old Testament? And uh, all of that just kind of really, as my dad and I were talking, just really felt like maybe we should do a flyover kind of series. We're hitting the big points, hitting the big highlights of the Old Testament so that when you are reading the Old Testament, you at least feel somewhat more comfortable or at least know, hey, I get what's going on, at least generally. Um, So, uh, because it's important. Uh, It's the foundation of the New Testament. Yeah, the foundation of a house gets covered up when the, the top kind of gets built, the superstructure gets built. Um, but anybody that's ever dealt with foundation problems in their home will testify the foundation is stinking important. So let's make sure our knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament is, is uh, strong, it's firm. Um, so that helps us to kind of guide us in how we interpret the New Testament and make sure our New Testament isn't off. So uh, a couple points recapping from last week. We talked about Genesis 1. Maybe brought some new information, a new way of viewing it, which was kind of fun. Uh, we really saw Genesis 1 less of a uh, uh, six-day creation of the material cosmos and more about seven days of this temple inauguration. It's common to inaugurate a temple. Solomon did it for seven days. Inaugurate this temple unto the Lord. And so what we see in Genesis 1 is, is, is God... Uh, kind of this uh, literary device using this to show that God is going to build this temple to to reside in it, to dwell in it, to reign in it, to rule in it, to rest. We looked at the definition of rest. Definitely not just chilling on the beach somewhere, sipping, you know, I don't know, whatever God drinks. You know, right? Um, So we talked about that. It's fascinating. We won't spend too much time on it. There was a lot there. Secondly, again, just want to continue to reiterate this time and time again. Even though we read this uh, Genesis 1 that way last week, again, God is still responsible for creating the material cosmos. All right? He definitely created it. He definitely did it. It's by his hand. It just it seems, at least from this point of view, from John Walton's kind of understanding, is that it's more focusing on the order and function of the cosmos rather than the physical, when it was the material substance was created. Created. Again, God's still responsible. God still did it. And we never want to, I didn't mention this last week, never want to get into this logic of, well, God is more uh, greater if he did it in six days or seven days than if he did it over millions or billions of years. That's just bad logic because I would say, well, then you're saying he would be greater if he did it in one snap, right? So God is not perfect. God is not great. We always get the Bible. God chose to do it this way. Don't stand in judgment of whether or not that was the best way to do it. All right? Just don't do it. All right? He did it the way he decided to do it. Amen. Praise God. You're wonderful and great, and you are who you say you are. All right? So let's jump into, we're going to focus in on the human beings, uh, day six for just a hot minute, and then we're going to jump to Genesis chapter two, and we're going to kind of see what these are going on. Fascinating. Genesis two is a fascinating chapter. Believe it or not, it gives uh, interpreters all sorts of problems. Genesis 2 is a weird, not weird, it's great. It's just hard to always get the relationship right with Genesis 1. And I think as you read it, you may see it and come to see, like, okay, how does this fit with Genesis 1? We're going to get it to it. It's going to be fun. We're going to have a lot of fun. 
It's going to be great. So, if you will, open your Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. Once again, I do not have it on the board. I didn't feel like writing an entire chapter. But I encourage you, it is good to bring your Bibles on Sundays. Good to open them. Good to see them. Good to work with them. Good to underline. Make little marginal notes. Man, I really encourage you, bring your Bibles. Again, if you have a phone, that's great too. Bible app it. It'll be even more fun because you can see different translations and different ways of how they interpreted certain words that we'll talk about today, okay? All right, here we go. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If you remember last week, remember we talked about this, this creation, separating, naming, giving function. Really, really important to them. So here we have God creating. He's separating male and female. Separating. He's naming in a sense male and female. But we'll get a little bit more specific on the naming when we get to chapter 2. And then here in 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground, the function and role. I really want to hit on this image of God because this is a really important uh, thing. Uh, only humans are made in the image of God. None of the animals, none of the planets, none of the stars, nothing like that. Humans, specific to humans, were made in the image of God. This is very important for our understanding of who we are as human beings. All right? This is a very much a, a, a uh, they're explaining something very uh, important and, and common to every human being on earth is made in the image of God. So what does this mean? All right? Well, I got a John Walton quote for you. Again, if you weren't here last week, John Walton, great uh, professor, Wheaton College, uh, Old Testament is his jam, specifically Genesis. Um, I'm very much indebted to him. Again, the, probably the main point I will make today is definitely from John Walton, so credit to him. He is great. Really encourage you. Uh, look him up. He's got some really, um, uh, he's got some fresh kind of new ways of looking at the Bible, and specifically Genesis, that I think is beneficial. Beneficial to consider. I'm not saying just take it hook, line, and sinker. Wrestle with it. Weigh it. Look at other opinions. But I think you definitely need to consider it and at least need to be aware of his uh, points he's making because I think uh, they're valuable and uh, they've got to be wrestled with. All right, here's a quote from him explaining again what does it mean for us be created in the image of God. It says this, the image of God as an Old Testament concept can be understood in four categories. This will refer to your outlines um, if you're keeping notes on outlines. It pertains to the role and function that God has given humanity. Found, for example, in subdue and rule. Genesis 1.28, we just read that. Role and function is your first one. It refers also to the identity, that's kind of your second one, that he has bequeathed on us. That's a fun word. That's your word of the day. All right. It is by definition who we are as human beings. It's something very intimate to who we all are. Our identity, all made in the image of God. And to the way that we serve as his substitute by representing his presence in the world. I love that, substitute. When Assyrian kings made images of themselves to be placed in conquered cities or at important borders, they were communicating that they were, in effect, continually present in that place. That's 
so, so important. God making you in the image of him. Wherever you go, God is saying, hey, I am still ruling through you, through me, through you. It's a fascinating thing. This is a very familiar concept in the Old Testament. They would have gotten this immediately. Finally, it is indicative of the relationship that God intends to have with us. Man, intimacy and intimacy. I love that. Let's focus for our sake, and again, because we're going to get to chapter 2 of Genesis, and we're going to talk a lot about that, we want to focus on this role and function of humans that is unique to humans, that is to rule the earth, to subdue it. You know, what does that mean to rule? Does it mean that we should all run for political office? Does it mean that we should all run for school board, right? Um, Well, keep that in mind. Let's jump into chapter 2 of Genesis, and we'll eventually answer that. Sound good? All right, so let's flip open your Bibles to chapter 2. We're going to start again in verses, verse 5, because as I kind of last week, uh, Genesis 1 goes into uh, chapter 2. Kind of a fun note, uh, the chapters and verses of the Bibles were implemented, I believe, my memory, I hope it serves me right, uh, 8th century A.D., and again, that's built on 8th century uh, theology and ideology of the Bible, and so now... 1,200 years removed, we know that, oh, when they broke up certain sections, well, they were too, uh, that section still goes together. So when I was in college, they were always like, never look at the chapter numbers and the verse numbers. They could still be an idea, still crossing chapters. So that's why, but once you did it, you can't change it, right? You have to change millions of references to the Bible if you ever went back and changed it, so they had to keep it. So that's why Genesis 1 through 2, 3 is one whole So that's why we're starting verses 4 or 5 and moving on, okay? All right, so here we go. Uh, We'll back up to verse 4. I like it. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Let's stop there for a second. Again, just to kind of refer back to my last sermon last week, if we hold on to this idea that Genesis 1 is is God creating the material cosmos in six literal days, Genesis 2 presents problems, all right? Because right here, we see in verse 5, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth. No plant had yet sprung up. Well, we know from Genesis 1 that happened in day 3. And then we know from verse 7, God makes man. Well, God makes man on day 6. So now we have a reordering. It just creates textual problems if we're going there. Okay? So just another reason why I think John Walton's view is at least, again, very beneficial to think about. All right? It solves the problem that, again, young earthers... Textually, Genesis 1 and 2 creates problems for this view. Something to be aware of, something to think about. It's fascinating, all right? So what do we do with Genesis 2 compared to Genesis 1? Well, I love this. This comes from John Walton. He says Genesis 2 is a sequel to Genesis 1. Genesis 2 is a sequel. What's the best sequel out there? All right, real quick. In my opinion, the best sequel, that's not like Two Towers is a sequel. I'm talking about like a movie. They made this movie. It did so well that they're like, you know what? Let's make another one. The best sequel out there ever that dwarfs the first movie? 
Oh, Home Alone 2. I'm with you, Brady. Home Alone 2 is better than Home Alone 1. That might be a hot take. It's the best sequel ever to me. I, I, I you know, Ace Ventura When Nature Calls, fantastic. Uh, what were the other ones? Gosh, now I can't think of it. Maybe. Three minutes. Oh, I forgot about that one. That is a good one. It's been a long time since I've seen those. Yeah, absolutely. So Genesis 2 is the sequel, all right? Check this out. I love how uh, kind of John Walton puts this. Genesis 1 begins with non-order in the larger cosmos. Genesis 2 begins with non-order in the terrestrial plane of the cosmos where humans and living things are going to be. Genesis 1 shows how the cosmos became sacred space. We talked a lot about that last week. And how that will function on behalf of the humans. This is a huge point of difference between the Israelites and, and the ancient Near East. Ancient Near East saw the whole cosmos, all sacred space, was all for the benefit of their God. We see from Genesis 1 that the whole, all of it is built for, on behalf of the humans. Kind of interesting, right? Humans are going to uh, get to eat the plants. The sun is put in the sky to help them keep time, the humans. It's all built, all created on behalf of the humans. So, if that's the case for Genesis 1, then Genesis 2 shows how humans will function in sacred space and on behalf of it. That makes sense? I'm going to say that again, just so we're all clear. I like that last one. Genesis 1 shows how the cosmos, sacred space, will function on behalf of the humans. Genesis 2 shows how humans will function in sacred space and on behalf of it. All right? That's where the relationship of Genesis 1 comes into play. I think it puts it nicely. Now, oh, because of time, we're going to keep going. All right, we're going to keep going. Let's go on. We see this. Verse 7, man is formed. We're going to talk about this word. You're going to see it. If you're in the NIV, you're going to see a lot of a man, a man, a man. You're going to ask, why is it not Adam? Why is it not? Why are they not naming Adam? Textually, the word for mankind in Hebrew is Adam. Adam. So this creates interesting conversations over is this a particular person with the name Adam? Or is this uh, referring to humankind on a large scale? So different translations are going to go different ways with it. And it's a fascinating conversation. We'll get into it a little bit more at the end. But if you're wondering why I keep saying a man or the man or uh, things like that, that's why. And we'll explain it at the very end. Let's move on to verse 8 through 14. Let's read that, and let's keep rocking and rolling. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ooh. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pashan. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic, resin, and onks are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. What's fascinating about this, and what we really need to get from this passage, is that the garden, this Garden of Eden, is the equivalent of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple. 
That's really, really important. Again, from last week, God creates this whole cosmos to be sacred space. So you can think of the whole cosmos as this temple. And if you're thinking to the tabernacle in, in King Solomon's temple, all right, uh, it was a building. But inside this building, there was this smaller space called the Holy of Holies where God was intimately, intimately present in that Holy of Holies. It was the Holy of Holies as it speaks. And so we can see that Genesis 2 is showing us that this garden is this equivalent of this Holy of Holies where God will be intimately present. We're going to see that in, verse, in chapter 3 where God, where it says God walks in the coolness of the day. God is intimately present in this garden. And why this garden has trees and, 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 and rivers are all these great symbolisms of, of this. A garden is full of life and fertility and growth. Evidence of fertility that resulted from the presence of God. The four rivers support this idea as they were commonly used as metaphors for life. Where God is, life abounds. That's why the garden was so teeming with life. Where God is, life abounds. It's no coincidence that, again, Revelation 22, man, Genesis and Revelation are so connected. Obviously, they're the bookends of the Bible. But it talks about a river of living water. The river of water of life. Rivers were always kind of used as these symbolic metaphors, right? Tree planted by streams of water yields its fruit in season. Brings life to it. Makes it strong. We need water. So rivers flowing through this. Four rivers running through this. And all this growth and all this teeming with life is just showing, man, when you're in the presence of God, oh, look how beautiful, how wonderful. All this growth, all this life. It's incredible. It's an incredible image. And again, our writer bringing home that symbolism to us. But let's talk about the fun part. You got these two trees in the garden. Oh, that's kind of interesting. You got the tree of life, and then you got this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which again, in my mind, I used to think tree of life was like this, oh, like, like glowing gold, you know, a little background music every time you looked at it kind of thing. And then the knowledge of tree, the knowledge of uh, of good and evil was kind of like this like twisted tree that was kind of like, you know, it was like more of a matte color and it was like, you know, you got real close, maybe some bark was chipping off. That's, that's how I imagine it. I think that was wrong. I, uh, John Wallen, I, I think, would, no, the grand, that's bad imagery. Um, we'll go to a quote from him. We'll explain it more. <laughs> Here's a quote from John Wallen about these trees. They provide what is only God's to give. He is the source of life, tree of life, which is given by him and found in his presence. And again, Deuteronomy 30 will testify to this. He is the center of order, and wisdom is the ability to discern order. The knowledge of tree, the knowledge of good, tree of the knowledge of good and evil can be referred to as the tree of wisdom. Not this tree of death. Not this tree of, of just like, it's like this like, ooh, this like, ooh, rotting, like dead tree in the garden. Ooh. Eve even says, the fruit looks good to pick. It looks good to eat. It's this tree of wisdom. 
Wisdom is the ability to discern order. Relationship with God is the beginning of wisdom. I love that. Adam's in this garden. He's in the presence of God, and it totally fits with Proverbs, and we're talking about that in youth, that relationship, the fear of the Lord, which is this, this right relationship, this right disposition towards God, is the beginning of wisdom. And so Adam, being in the garden with God, it's just the beginning of wisdom, but it seems by the presence of this tree of wisdom that there is more wisdom to be had, to be gained. But for some reason, God says, not right now. Don't take of it. Don't touch. Ooh, ooh, Satan says don't touch it. God just says, hey, you can eat from any tree in the garden, verse 16, and then into verse 17, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Once again, back to the quotes about with John Walton. Life is gained in the presence of God, and wisdom is His gift, not to be taken on one's own. God is the source and center of wisdom, not us. It would seem that Adam was to learn wisdom by abstaining from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil until God said otherwise. Abstaining can, can birth tremendous wisdom. Jesus never sinned. And yet C.S. Lewis makes this great kind of showing about how Jesus, because he never sinned, because he never gave in to temptation, knows sin way better than any of us. Because he abstained from it. Because he walked through that temptation to the fullest extent and never gave in to it. It's a fascinating thing. That's a fascinating thing. Again, in our culture, we can be very much experience is knowledge. And so you got to experience something in order to know it. And yet it would seem that God was saying, I want to teach you wisdom by you not having this, by you not experiencing this at this time. It's a fascinating thing to think about. I think there's so much more to be thought about there, uh, to be vetted. Um, but for our sake and time, let's keep rocking and rolling. I think it's fascinating. Let's go to verses 15 through 17. Again, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Again, God gives him the command, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when it you will certainly die. This is the main point I want to hit on. I titled this creation of priests for sacred space, and this is John Walton's big point. God creates this place called Garden of Eden. It's where he is going to intimately be present. And he gives Adam what would probably refer to as the first priestly role. You fast forward to the tabernacle. Fast forward to King Solomon's temple. You have priests taking care of the temple. Taking care of the temple. They work in the temple. They take care of it. They uphold it. I love this. As priests, we mediate the benefits of God's presence. That was Adam's role. It was not simply just, hey, be a good uh, landscaper, you know, be a good gardener, you know, keep things pruned, maybe weed whack some of this or that. I guess maybe didn't have weeds, so maybe not weed whack, right? All right? 
It was so much more than that. And again, we, we can read the Old Testament. We're going to be like, oh, man, we read Leviticus, and we read about the priests, and it's like, golly, it was just so ritualistic. Like, you know, put the blood on these horns of the altar, move on, sprinkle this, make sure this sacrifice is put into the basin. And we read it so sterilized in our culture, right? Because we're so removed from it. But it was so much more than just this ritual that they went through every single day. They were maintaining the sacredness of God's presence. They were maintaining the sanctity of God's presence. They were maintaining the order of the cosmos. That God is holy. And God has chosen to dwell with us. And that matters. And it matters how we enter into that relationship and into His presence. We don't go in there flippantly. We don't go in there willy-nilly. We don't go in there barging in, doing whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do. We maintain order. We maintain the sacred space. We mediate the benefits of God's presence. That's what the priests were doing. The people living in Israel needed sacrifices. Needed to become right with God. They would bring their sacrifices. They would bring their animals. They would bring grain offerings. They would bring all these things. Make sure that they continued to be right with God in His presence, living rightly with Him, because not only was that what was necessary to live in the presence of God as a holy nation, as a kingdom of priests, but it was also to maintain order in this cosmos. God is here. God is present. And if we get that muddied, or we don't buy into that, or we don't get that right, boy, we are just agents of disorder. We're going to see that next week. We're going to see this agent of disorder. And we're going to start to see as we continue on how the disorder unravels and unravels and unravels. I, have a, I think I have a big quote up here. This is me. As priests, we mediate the benefits of God's presence by holding up the order of the world which was to keep us in right relationship with God by the activities of the temple. Others could enjoy the blessing of living with God. Mediate God's presence in the world. Extend God's presence in the world. This is for the benefit of the whole world and results in praise being reflected back to God, fulfilling our purpose for being created in God's image. And you've been given these two dual, kind of very intimately connected roles as humans and functions, ruler and priest. Ruling has to do with maintaining order. Maintaining order. Wisdom literature is such a big part of the Old Testament. Job, Psalm, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. These wisdom literature, it's such an important part to them. And it was always connected back to Genesis 1 and 2. Always, 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 always. Wisdom always has to do with maintaining order. God created order. He created a certain way for us to function. And wisdom is about figuring out and finding that order and living in that order. Being obedient to that order and not doing your own thing when you want to do it. And this was to the benefit. The benefit of all those involved. Man, look at this. When God calls Israel, Exodus chapter 19, 5-6. This is God talking to the nation of Israel. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. 
although the whole earth is mine, duh, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Man. Check this out. I love this one from Deuteronomy. This is one of my favorites. Deuteronomy 4, 6-8. Observe them carefully. He's talking about the laws, uh, the Mosaic law, the, the, the law of Moses. Observe them carefully, these, these uh, uh, decrees of the law. For this will show your wisdom, order, and understanding to the nations. Who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Oh, man, I love it. And it's to the benefit of these other nations. 1 Peter 2.9, again, to show you that this, this, this theme carries through the entire Bible because even Peter in the New Testament, after Jesus has died and rose again and is in heaven, he even carries this thought through in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, us, believers, a royal priesthood, royal, ruling, priesthood, priesthood, a holy nation, same idea, God's special possession, make sound like treasured possession, special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness, into his wonderful light. Oh my gosh. Let me try to explain this once again. This is so important. Adam wasn't just like, hey, all right, I need a gardener. Adam, yeah, let's form a gardener. Man, that is just so missed the point of what Adam was called to do. Adam is the first priest, first one to step into the holy of holies, into God's intimate presence. He say, I want you to do two things. I want you to be a ruler and I want you to be a priest. I want you to maintain order here. I want you to be wise. You're going to learn wisdom by abstaining from this tree of knowledge of good and evil. You're going to learn wisdom through that. So don't do that. I also want you to maintain my presence. Maintain this space. John Walton even says, I love it. He said, extend. his job was to extend the Garden of Eden. It was to spread it out, to make it continue to grow so that God's intimate presence could continue to grow. And as these, you, you cultivated uh, these rivers, you could make them, you know, as we do today, we make rivers travel much further than their actual intended paths. We can water great lands. We can make things grow out of arid lands. And that was the purpose. Take all the life, all the goodness of God's presence and expand. The Holy of Holies was never intended to be a small room. It was never meant to be this small, confined space where only one guy once a year could go into. It was never intended for that. It was only that for that state of period of time. And golly, because if God, man, if God would have expanded that out, He would have just, ah, He would have been chopping people down left and right for their unholiness, Right? So thank God he did that and put it behind all that stuff or else none of us could have handled that. But we see through Jesus, God always wanted to be intimate with us all. He's always wanted to be intimate presence with us all. 
And now that we have the Holy Spirit in you and me, we take that presence and now as priests, we are mediators of this presence. We're to go out into the world, into our communities, into our families, into our workplaces. We're supposed to go out and now bring the goodness of God's presence that we all carry with ourselves through the Holy Spirit to them. And by that, I think they will be like Deuteronomy's passage where they will say, I've observed you. I see wisdom in your life. I see the wisdom of you abstaining from these certain kinds of practices. I see the wisdom of, of, of why you do this and don't do that. And we see God's presence blessing. And as more people come into this presence, more people receive Christ, more people receive the Holy Spirit, it can't help but now praise God. Man, praise God for His wisdom. Praise God for the truth of who He is. Oh, praise God that my sins are forgiven. Praise God that I have His presence here with me as well. Oh my gosh, praise God that He will never leave me nor forsake me. Praise God that it's in is Him who works in us to will and to act according to His good purposes. Man. And guess what? As image bearers of God, as reflectors, of God, you are reflecting God's presence to your community, family, friends, workforce. And then as they come along and see, wow, maybe there's something here. There is goodness here. They in turn, when they praise God back, you are now reflecting God to them and then reflecting their praises back to God. That is the beautiful illustration of the image of God as reflections of God. God is ruling as the Assyrian kings, when they built images in border cities or in major towns, God is here. This king is here. You have received the Holy Spirit to show that God has, is here in this space, in you, and in whatever comes into contact with you and wherever you go. And so as a priest, extend God's presence as Adam was doing and initiated and called to do, commissioned to do. This job is so big. This job is so important that God says, it is not good that you are alone. You need a helper to do this. This goes way beyond this kind of sterile, flat thing of like, well, you know, God, you know, Adam was just bored and, you know, he just needed somebody he could talk to. You know, the animals couldn't talk, so he needed somebody. No, 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 no. He was given this commission to be this priest and to uphold this sacred, holy of holies. And God said, it's not good that you are alone. And you need help doing that. So I am going to bring you a helper. Check this out. Verses 18 through the rest. Now the Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave the names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam... No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, now this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 
You will notice if you have the NIV 2011, a footnote, that when it refers to the rib, it can also be referred to as the side. Uh, John Walton will take that uh, interpretation. It would seem that it is more commonly referred to as something not as small as a rib, but something large. It would seem, from this illustration, that the symbolism of what God is doing to Adam is that he's taking a half of Adam. Now, we in our culture say, oh, you complete me. You're my other half. Don't think of it that way. Think of it this way. What God is showing us through this is that a woman is an ontological equal. Fun word. Second word of the day. Bequeathed and ontological. Ontological is a fancy word for saying as per your being, as per your existence on earth, it's a very philosophical big term, theological term, as per your being, as for your existence, you are an equal. Men and women are equal. Makes sense. Genesis 1, 27 through 28. God made mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Equal. Equal. Both carry the image of God. Men and women. The symbolism of the woman coming from the side of Adam is that they're equal. They stand side by side in this dual rule to rule and to be priests, to maintain God's presence, to see it grow and to extend. Men and women equal side by side. It's wonderful, beautiful. And yes, it goes further into the marriage uh, part, and that's why, uh, you know, Again, sex is so uh, held with such reverence in the church. Thank God. Or it will undoubtedly kind of refers to, it makes sense now, when a man and woman come together, they come one flesh. It's kind of this idea that as Paul and that as, as our writer will kind of talk about is that, you know, woman came from your side, so when you come back together, you kind of are becoming back to this one where Adam was by himself. So you do become this one flesh. It's really complex metaphors and symbolism, it's, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's a beautiful thing when, when a couple get married. It's a beautiful thing when they become one flesh. We're kind of entering back to this, this, this state that Adam was in. It's fascinating. And again, golly, you don't have to be married to experience that. Again, Paul and Jesus weren't married. They didn't do this stuff. All right? So it's not like they're not whole or they're, not, uh, they're less than. But, no, but by no means it does show that, hey, those are married, those who have come together. It's a mystery. Even Paul talks about that in Ephesians. Yeah, it's kind of a mystery. I don't really get it, but it's a mystery, but it's beautiful, right? And I'll talk about it as it presents Jesus and the church. But it's this wonderful thing. Men and women together doing the priestly role together. It is such a big task to mediate the presence of God into the world, to extend the presence of God in the world. Men and women are called to do that side by side. It's a wonderful thing. Here's another interesting thing. Talked about the, the grammar. You, why, kind of my final point, the man, a man, the man. Uh, verse 20 says, Adam in my Bible. Slap on the wrist, NIV, all right? Now, NIV is upfront about how they interpret. If you ever want to really nerd out, read your preface of your Bible, all right? You're going to look at their philosophical translation, their philosophy of translating the Bible. Uh, that is... Adam, I mean, they're, they're, that, the word is not there in the Hebrew, but they put it there, okay? Um, why it's not there? Um, why the man or a man? It's because uh, essentially in the Hebrew, they put a, the man. And when it's referred to the man, we don't typically use the grant to refer to me. I just say grant. So in the Hebrew kind of grammar, if you have a the, that prefix hooked to Adam, then they usually translate it as man or another 
prefix or presupposition, a, a man. Um, why this is important is because when that is referred to, it's like Pilgrim's Progress. When a name is given to a person, the name means more than the actual like physical person, if that makes sense. Again, it's called an archetype. All right, what is an archetype? An archetype means that it's kind of a fun phrase of saying that all are embodied in the one and count as, as having participated in the acts of the one. Paul will hugely use this when he talks about the first Adam and the last Adam. Right? All have sinned in Adam. We are all kind of embodied in this act, especially come next chapter, next week. You can also refer to it as a representational. This was really common. Again, in this culture, this doesn't really make sense for us. Nowadays, we're so individualistic. But you'll read in the Old Testament where a father, more than one story, where a father will really mess up and they'll kill the whole family. All right? And it's like, ooh. But in that culture, you as the head of the household were the representative. Everybody in your family was kind of wrapped up with you. And so they all, like, there was almost no separation. There was no this individual identity that we would think of. Now, the Old Testament still wrestles with this idea because you'll have, you know, if a father sins, then if they're wicked, then we're going to use that and it's going to go down from generation to generation. And then you have other passages that are like, no, children don't pay for the sins of the father. You have this struggle in the Old Testament. It's fascinating. You even see it in the New Testament when Jesus comes, the, the priests and the Pharisees bring up this man with a withered hand and they say, who sinned, his father or his mother? You see this idea? This is how they believed. This is how they thought about the world. And what does Jesus say? Man, father and mother didn't sin. This is about God being glorified. Right? It's a fascinating concept. Getting way off topic, but we need to understand you have this archetypal way of talking about people in the Old Testament that all are embodied in the one and counted as having participated in the acts of the one. You also have a representational way of talking about people, which again, one is serving as an elected delegate on behalf of the rest. The kings of Israel are very much referred to in this way. Jesus will be referred to in this way. So when we get this, the, the man or a man, it has led interpreters to believe that they are talking about this man archetypally or representationally. So why is this important for us? It means that this commissioning of Adam to do this priestly role of maintaining and, and extending God's presence has been passed on to you and me and us all. Every one of us. Not pastors, not theologians, not bishops, not pope. Every single person bearing the image of God has been commissioned to maintain and participate in the work of the cosmos. To maintain order to pursue wisdom, to gain it, as Proverbs talks about. If you gain nothing in life but wisdom, that's great. It's worth more valuable than anything else in the world. To maintain this ordered system. God is who He is. God is with us. That means there's a certain way we got to get in order. We have to have right relationship with Him. we got to find out the right way to live in this world. And we have to take His presence. and we got to extend it. we got to keep going for the benefit of all the nations. For the benefit of your co-workers and your community and your family members. Each and every one of us has been given that commission, that role. That's your role. That's your function. 
as an image bearer of God on this earth. If you're ever asking, God, what's, my, what's your will for my life? Man, I'm going to say that right there. All right? That's your will. That's God's will for your life. That's God's will for your life. And yes, there is tremendous creativity, and I even bet some openness as to what that looks like for each individual person. But boy, that better be the heart of it. Not, well, you know, I got this dream and I want to fulfill this dream. No, that better not be the heart of it. That better not be the foundation of it. It better be, you know what, I'm to participate in the Lord's work of bringing order and mediating His presence to this world and where I am. Man, that's the foundation for God's will for your life. And boy, that better be our mindset. And so it comes to this. How are you mediating and facilitating God's presence in the world? Man, I think relationship, I kind of gave you the answer. Relationship with God, first and foremost, right relationship. Then relationship with other people. Real relationship. Not foo-foo, surfacy relationship or, hey, how's it going? I'm fine. Cool. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks. All right. Come on now. I know there's a time and place for all that. But let's have some real relationship with each other. Some real relationship with each other where we're supporting each other. It's hard work mediating God's presence to the world. It's hard work. It's stressful. It's, it, it bears anxiety and depression. Golly, it's tough, tough work. We need each other. We need each other's help. We need each other's help. Worship. Man, praising God. Worshiping the Lord. Gosh. Praising Him for who He is. Holiness. Again, that idea of a holy nation carries through. Holiness never goes away. Not even post-Jesus. It matters how you live your life. It matters that you sin and don't sin. It matters. And again, grace and mercy upon you. Amen? But it still matters. And every act, it's important. It's important how we are living. We are living in the presence of God inside of you. You are a temple, as Paul calls you. A temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't defile this temple. And I say that to myself as much as I say that to each and every one of you. Man, let's take that seriously. And again, wisdom. How do we live this out? What is the right way in this area, God? How do we bring order to this, this job, this school, this, this family, this community, this nation, this world? God, we need your order. We need your presence to go forward and to continue to extend through us and to result in greater praise and for the benefit and blessing. Abraham will be called and given a purpose and a commission and a covenant to be a blessing to all nations. We're wrapped up in that. He's representational. He's representational. We're a part of that. Let's participate that together. If you'll stand with me, we'll close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for these wonderfully beautiful uh, chapters full of complexity and depth of wonder, wonder, God. Thank you for this commission that you've given to us as men and women, side by side. God, may you help us side by side to mediate your presence, God, uh, into the world, into our community. Oh, God, may, may you help us to want that. <laughs> want that over and above our desires or our dreams or our passions. 
God, may we be, uh, fulfill our role that you've given us to each and every one of us. To find your order in the world and how you've created all things. Give us wisdom, God. We ask this in your name. We need your wisdom and your help in this. And then, God, to mediate your presence. Man, to extend your presence into our community, into our workplaces, into those places that, man, they're just so full of disorder and disharmony and dysfunction and just, uh, gosh, uh, just a bunch of just horrible things. God, may we follow you into those places. May we extend your presence into those places wisely. God, may it result in greater praise. More people saying, man, God, you are real, you are true. Wow, wow, wow. God, may we reflect your presence into this world and may we again reflect the praises of others and ourselves back to you for who you are. Help us to do this, Father God. Help us to grow in this. Help us to want this. Give us energy for this. God, give us wisdom in what needs to change in our lifestyles if this is not a priority or this is not something we want to give time to or have time for. God, give us wisdom and guidance in this to make this change. For this is so foundational to your will for each and every one of our lives. Oh, God, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. We do. You are good. Man. We're just so grateful. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. We all said together, amen. Amen, amen. Love you guys. Sorry again for another. I'm sorry. These first three chapters are just the foundation of the whole Bible. Take some time. Uh, but love you guys. Have a great, great week. Again, sign ups for small groups. Get them, get them going. And uh, again, children's ministry, there's still a lot of spaces. It'll be fun. Come on. Go look at those kids. They're so cute. They're so much fun to teach. All right. Uh, Really encourage you guys to make that happen. Uh, fulfill your priestly role. Bring some order to those kids, all right? Bring some blessing and presence to them, yeah? Amen. I uh, love you guys. I think that's it. Amen. <laughs>